0: a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
1: Have you ever had the experience when, um, that you're the last person chosen on a team? So it's touch football. <clears throat> there's 12 of you, the two best, same ones of the captains, and, and uh, there's 10 left, and then there's eight, and then there's six, and then there's four, and now you're getting nervous. And then there's two, and you begin to think, I don't want to be the last one. Because this is kind of a defining moment when you think about it. Because the second to last guy, he gets his name called, Jimmy. And then the last guy, you don't even call his name. He says, come on. He doesn't even have a name. I've never had this experience personally. But people have told me that it's very, very challenging. You you quickly learn in life that... um, That good things come and people advance based upon how well you do, how good you look, um, how well you talk. You know the uh, uh, you quickly learn even as a young person that things come to those that seem to achieve more. You know the fancy word for this is meritocracy, which is that it's a system of of life where advancement comes to those who achieve the most. And uh, many of us, uh, uh, you know, we, we still are striving to be included, to, to be picked first, uh, to have a sense of community. You know, many of us are still working to receive the approval of other people. We, we want to be whatever it takes to get on the team or to be picked first. And, and uh, it can be crushing. When you're always trying uh, to be whoever you think you need to be to get where you think you need to be and, and get. And, and Peter is trying to give us a, an identity that is based on grace and not on merit, not on achievement. Peter's trying to forge for us an identity to let us know who we are in God because of Christ. Now, remember where we are in this book. You know, at the beginning of Peter, he laid out this glorious salvation in chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. And he told us about this living hope that God has caused us to be born into and this imperishable inheritance. And here's a promise from God that he will keep us for it. So God's going to protect us for it. This salvation is all according to his mercy. And this salvation has been given to us. And then the implications from that is that we would live differently before God. So Peter talks about our salvation, and then immediately says, so this is the way you ought to live before God. He said you ought to live in hope, right? Hope for the grace that's to be revealed. We're a hope-filled people because of the promise we have. But he also says live in holiness because God is holy. And he says conduct yourselves in fear. We ought to. He is our Father And yet he's an impartial judge as well. So with this salvation, we in fact are living this way before God. But then last week, we we heard about how we're to live with each other, to love earnestly one another. And we're told how to long together to grow up in salvation. So, So Peter, right out of the gate, this is your salvation. Here's how you live before God, and here's how you live with each other. Now, this passage that Becky read that's the last passage in the first section, because the rest of the book, from chapter 2, 11, all the way through the middle of 4, he's going to teach us how to live before the world. So, so all this social ethic, probably, this book in the New Testament probably teaches us more about the social responsibilities that we have than any other book in the New Testament. But the passage that we're studying right now, he wants to bear down on us so that we know before we go to the world, here's who you are. Don't lose sight of who you are. In other words, he knows that we are pilgrims and sojourners and aliens. And don't let the pressures and the moors and the cultural ideas reconform you to develop an identity that you think works out there. I'm giving you an identity is what he's saying. We need to have a firm grasp of our identity, so that when the pressures come, it doesn't dilute, it doesn't confuse us as to who we are in God. And the way Peter does it in this passage is, he gives us four privileges. I, I just want to walk through. This is really meant to be just an encouraging word for you. This is who you are because of the grace that is ours in Christ. It's just four privileges that are yours in Christ. The first one you see right in verse 4. And it's, it can be a little bit convoluted when you read it in one fell swoop. So we'll just go through it piece by piece. Look in verse 4. The first privilege is that you have access to God. That we, the church in exile, have access to God. He says, look, right in verse 4, as you come to him a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, precious and chosen. So Peter's saying right off the bat, you have access to God, immediate access to God. You can come to him. Now, I don't think he's speaking about the conversion that we experience, that we come to him by faith, that initial experience where where our faith is placed in Christ to save us from our sins, and he delivers us and washes us clean and adopts us. Don't think he's speaking about that. We cover that in chapter 1. Uh, last week if you remember that we're born again with an imperishable seed. Now I think he's talking about this ongoing relationship whereby we can access God in Christ. We can come to him. We can come to the one that's the living stone. Now that that ought to catch your attention a little bit. A living stone. Stones don't they don't live. It's a cold, inanimate object. And yet it's a living stone. It's an oxymoron. It's like you know, deafening silence or hell's angels. It, it, it's, it's supposed to catch you. It's supposed to, he's a living stone, referencing this idea that he was dead, but now he's alive. He's able to minister. He is an active minister to us, bringing us to the Father. But, but there's a little bit more going on with this stone imagery. It, it, it's the Old Testament, if you think about Daniel 2, when Daniel's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and he has a dream. And he sees that his kingdom will ultimately crumble. And he's scared. And he asked, and Daniel comes and gives us this interpretation. And he says, The final kingdom will be a stone. And this kingdom's going to crush all kingdoms. And this kingdom, of course, this stone is seen as the Messiah, the one who will bring God's kingdom and set, up, set it up forever. But the stone's also used in Isaiah 28, it's a cornerstone, he's precious. And in the passage in Isaiah, God's building a new people. The people of Israel had failed. I'm building a new people, and it's going to be built on this cornerstone or the Messiah. Jesus himself refers to himself as the cornerstone in his debate with the religious leaders. So when he says, as you come to him a living stone, Peter's inviting us. We, the church in exile, can approach God with confidence Because of this living stone. Now, let me remind you, in this day, these Christians, they're Gentiles. They're scattered in what is now modern-day Turkey, the northern part of it. They They were taken out of their pagan background. So they had no priests. They had no temple. They had no sacrificial system. They were being persecuted by the government. They had no access to help. And so Peter says, as you come to him you have access to God. Everything that is God is yours as his Father. So, so, so we, the church in exile, have the privilege of, of appearing before God at any time, asking him for anything. You know, Paul says it this way, that we, there is one mediator, mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Now, this is probably a trite example, but, but I think it, it may help you know, illuminate this idea to you So, you know, we know that you can't just access a state governor, we we know that you can't, or a state senator, Uh, we know that you can't just access a senator at the federal level. You can't just access anybody in government that you may turn to for help. I I mean, you can't, I have trouble accessing a living operator when I call Verizon, or I've been finding myself saying, I just wanna talk to a person, a, a live person, that's all I want. You cannot access things as you desire. And yet yet he is inviting us to just, as you come to him. It's a continuous present. It means keep coming to him. You keep coming to him. Uh, Do you avail yourself of access to God in Christ? I mean, do you come with confidence? I mean, do you think that he does want to hear me when I come. Jesus is precious and chosen. So God has an ear. He's chosen the Son. The Son is precious to him. When we come to him in the name of his Son, he listens to us. Do you consider that? How often do you avail yourself? So when you are confronted with an issue, how quickly do you run to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ? How quickly and how confidently do you feel he will hear me? I think about the writer in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. There's an invitation here, invitation to come. To come to him. How often? Jesus is precious to the Father. And so when you come in his name, he hears you. He responds to you. you know, this is an objection to Christianity sometimes, leveled even within the church, that does prayer really matter? Does it really? It feels like you're just throwing them up to the sky or they're just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back to you. Nobody really listens to you. Why do you even pray? You know, these thoughts come into your mind, Does it really matter that you pray? Well, let me just remind you what Jesus says about this. He says in John 14, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. So Jesus is saying, going to the Father, want the Father glorified, ask for these things in my name. He says the same thing to John in John 16. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing of my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Now, of course, there is some maturity that needs to be considered when we just start throwing up petitions before God. Uh, but, but there's a confidence that he's trying to engender with his people. So to the church in exile, we are aliens and we're pilgrims. Our citizenship is in heaven a privilege of having the identity of being part of the people of God is you have access. It's like when you get that special ticket that you can bypass all the security because you're like TSA Select or something. You just enjoy it. Access it. Just revel in what he has done for you. So that's the first privilege. Uh, The second privilege is seen in verse 5, where the church in exile is actually called to be a community of worshipers, uh, really a community of priests, men and women serving unto God. Look what it says in 5. He says, And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. This is really an amazing, this is an amazing idea. Peter is encouraging us regarding the privilege that we have of being made living stones. That's right, so we too were dead inanimate stones, and yet through faith yoked to Christ, we are now made alive, being built up upon Christ. This idea of through faith we're being fitted together with Christ into a spiritual house. Ignatius was an early um, part of the church fathers, we call them, the, the second generation and a little bit beyond after the apostles. And he likened this idea of being fitted together, that God is like the spirit of God is a rope, lifting up stones and putting them around the foundation of the temple that he's building. Because you notice it's a passive here. We are being built up. This isn't something you do. This is something that God does through the power of his spirit. He builds us stone upon stone that we would become the house of God. That word for house is temple. We're becoming a temple. This idea of, if you remember in the Old Testament... The idea of a temple is that's where God met with his people. That's where sacrifices were offered. That's where prayers were, were issued up to the Father. And he's saying now you're the temple. You. He's speaking to Gentile Christians saying you are now the temple of God. If you were to think about the, the Old Testament temple, they loved the temple. Why? It was the presence of God. If you remember, even the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus taught, Remember the man was wounded, and the Levite went by, and the priest went by? Well, in some respects, it's easy to understand why the priest would have gone by. The priest would only get to serve in the temple one time a year. This is his one opportunity. He doesn't want to touch a sick, possibly a dead man, and defile himself. He doesn't want to miss the opportunity to worship and offer sacrifices before God. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 84. He says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh, sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Just in the courts. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You get this impression, just to be near God, to be near the temple, to be near God, was unfathomable joy. And yet he's saying, you're living stone." You're the temple of God now. And this is incredible, that that we're actually this temple of God, that no longer will a temple be needed, because we're the temple. Now, let me just draw out some of the applications here. This means that the church is central to God's plan, Uh, that all of God's saving activity now is coming through the church. The church is God's plan to affect the world. Now, when I was younger in the faith, I used to listen to a lot of these um, radio teachers on end times. And much teaching that I received, perhaps you as well, is there had to be another temple built, That, 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 that he's going to take the church away, and another temple has to be built. And then that temple will be built, and then Jesus will come and save Israel. doesn't seem to be that way from this text. We're now living stones once, you know The temple in the Old Testament was always a picture looking forward to that day God would dwell with man. But now what we find here is that we're the living stones built upon Christ the cornerstone. The church is the new Israel. The church is where the manifold wisdom of God is going to be. We don't need to look for another temple because once the real has come, the shadows are not looked at anymore. Once the substance has come, that which symbolized it, is secondary, So we don't want to look for another temple to be built in Israel. We are the temple of God through which his plan is going to come. This may rattle a pan or two and come forward if you want after the service, if this is different that you've understood. But this is really important because the church is not a parenthesis to God's plan. Hey, he's going to use the church for a while, and then he'll go back to using the temple sacrifices. Not so. This is the central plan of God. Not only do we see that in this passage, but we also see that we are being built up into a community, that that God is, is putting us stone upon stone. So in other words, we're not to be scattered about in life like stones around a construction site. He is building us brick upon brick to be a sanctuary for God, that we now are the display of God's wisdom to the world. Now, this needs to be said because we live in a very individualistic culture. and and there is an increasing percentage of people who will self-identify as Christians, but they don't go to church, or they don't affiliate with the church, or they attend a church for years and they never join it. In fact, a recent survey showed that 23 million Americans, probably 7% of this nation, would identify themselves as committed to Christ, but they don't want any association with the church. And, and, And this seems to be an anomaly to Scripture. Scripture doesn't seem to see these, these desperate Christians, but they're gathered together, brick upon brick. In fact, David Wells, a professor of mine, some of you have read some of his books, um, said that I often ask a person what they think of the church to determine what they think of Christianity. Because how you view the church is very telling to what you see of Christ. Uh, Peterson, a, a modern author, Eugene Peterson, he says, it is not possible to have Christ apart from the church. We try. We would very much like to have Christ apart from the contradictions and the distractions of the other persons who believe in him or say they do. It would be nice, but it wouldn't be biblical. So, so let me encourage you uh, to, to value, to, to consider this. Do you, do you enjoy being part of a fellowship? Do you enjoy the unity and the belongingness that you have here? I mean, do you consider it a good thing? Do you avail yourself of it? I came across an article regarding the gang problem in Chicago. You know, the amount of murders and shootings. I think there's uh, 323 shootings already this year. They're keeping pace maybe a little bit ahead of 16. 72 people have already died. And so how do you deal with this gang problem? And the article had a, had a provocative title. It says, Chicago gang members say more police won't stop the murders. Now, they didn't say that because they don't want the police. We think we'll put more police in. The president suggests, hey, put troops in. They said that won't do it. And here's why. This was from a man uh, who was part of um, the Black Disciples. He says this. He said that his first gun was a gift given to him as a preteen. He said, I looked at it like that was love. I looked at it like this person loved me for the simple fact that they wanted to see me protected. They gave me something that was going to protect me. Another man goes on and says, half these guys don't have moms. Either they're crackheads or they're dope fiends, boosters or something. He wouldn't identify himself only as a member of the black disciple. But he said, the moms and the fathers are lost in the same gang we're getting into. But he says, we're more like a family than a gang. We're brothers. The draw to gangs, the reason more police won't help, is because we need, fundamentally, we all need to belong. We need to feel as if we're part of a group. Even if the group is self-destructive like a gang, we would rather have that than have nothing. And yet here we have the privilege of being joined together to belong to one another in Christ. Uh, Do you appreciate that? I mean, do you avail yourself of the friendships that you have here? Uh, Do you go out of your way to to encourage and cultivate a spiritual good in those around you? Or do you come in and get out? And and I understand that sometimes we're inhibited, we feel uncomfortable with crowds, but this is a privilege that we have here. And I'll tell you one thing, John Stott has said this, that as the pressure on the church increases, the relationships that you have here will be more needed. Well, you don't want to develop them in the midst of conflict, you want to develop them now. Okay, the third privilege that we see, and this is in six to eight, and you're gonna have to walk through this with me. It's a kind of a confusing little piece of scripture, but the third privilege is simply this, that the church in exile has a destiny of hope. We have a destiny. We have a future that is secure. Now, in a very uncertain world in which we live right now, this should take away much of the fear that we face. Look with me in verse six. He says this. He says, so, or for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am li- laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a precious stone, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Look with me in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. What Peter's doing right here is Peter is not just giving you a pie-in-the-sky hope. Hey, you know what? you got a great future. You know what? You're it, you got, It's all good for you. No, he says, for it stands. He goes back to the Old Testament to show us that our future hope is guaranteed in a past word from God. And he says this, to you who believe, Jesus is precious. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But we're going to have hope and we're going to have honor. In other words, the honor that comes to Christ comes to us because we're fitted with him. So the future for the Christian living in exile now is one of great honor. Now, this may not appeal to you as much, so let me draw you back into the context a little bit. We have a very individualistic culture here, but this culture was a culture of honor and shame. Shame and honor, that's the type of culture the Middle Eastern culture is. And so to shame someone, to exclude them from the community was socially damaging that you wouldn't be part of it. Now, they're a part of an agrarian society here, and so to be to be excluded from the community in an agrarian society could be physically detrimental. You would need other people to help you live. It was a communal effort to live. And so what Peter's saying to the church under persecution is, listen, you are experiencing shame right now. You're being ostracized. You're being ignored. You're being cut out. You're not being included. He goes, Though you may face shame now, you will have honor. On that day, you will have, I will honor you as I honor the Son because you're linked to him. Can you imagine the day, go forward in your mind, that he would honor you for bearing the shame of his name? This is the the encouragement that we have. Being part of the God, being part of the family of God, we have the privilege of looking forward to the day. Uh, If you're a Christian here, You have to have one eye trained on the day. Life doesn't make sense apart from that day. But notice what he says, for you who believe, Jesus is precious. But look at what he says in verse 7 to those who do not believe. Because Peter wants to help explain the unbelief of people around the church. He says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Peter is quoting Psalm 18, this collection from Isaiah 28, Psalm 8, 118, Isaiah 8, this clumping of texts together to prove his point. Peter is reminding the church that when Jesus walked on this earth in ministry, that he was the cornerstone and he was rejected, right? The, the Pharisees and in Matthew 12, they rejected him completely. And Jesus quotes this psalm to them to let them know, your rejection was destined, it was planned. It is not a surprise to me that you're rejecting me. And then Peter explains, he says this, he says, Jesus is not just the cornerstone, but he's a crushing stone. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble Because they disobey the word. In other words, Jesus is saying that they are stumbling over Jesus because of his claims to repent and believe. They're stumbling over him and they're disobeying the gospel that's been given to them. They do not believe. And he's explaining that their disbelief is their disobedience, it's their responsibility. And he's explaining that they have chosen to not believe. But then look what he says. He adds this little confusing, just mind-torturing phrase, as they were destined to do. Well, who is it? Are they disobedient because they're willingly doing it? Or has God destined them to disobey? Well, yes. They're both there. It's in the same verse. I'm not going to untangle the tension that God has left in his scripture. The reality of it is they chose to disobey. But Peter's trying to encourage you, the church, to help you understand that even the disobedience of the world is still part of God's plan. God isn't thwarted. The church won't be stopped because of the disobedience of the world, because of their anger and their bitterness and even the press back on the church. The church won't be stopped. I mean, we are eyewitnesses to the reality of an exploding church in China an oppressive regime, and the church has thrived. In Iran, the church is growing in an oppressive regime where people are dying, and God is growing his church. So don't ever think that their disbelief is going to somehow impact the church. That's a privilege to know that. You don't have to fear, even as ostracizing or marginalization or some sort of fragment, you know, this culture of fragments, the church will survive because we're built on a living stone, not a dead stone, not an idea where the founder has perished long ago. He's living, active at the right hand of God over rule, authority, power for the church. So this is a privilege to us because we don't have to fear. We just have to walk by faith. Okay, the, the, and I would, um, do you enjoy that? I mean, do you see how precious Jesus is now when you read that? I mean, this is the distinguishing mark between the believer and the non-believer. It's what do you think of Jesus? Do you find him precious? If, if God says he's precious, if God looks at, at Jesus and says he is precious, so if Jesus, if God sees things as they truly are, then shouldn't we see him as precious as well? I mean, do you see him as precious? I, I, I mean, his, his leaving this triune joy of the Father, Son, and Spirit, taking on flesh, walking with us, experiencing our troubles and trials, bearing our shame and our punishment by taking upon himself our sin, suffering the wrath of God in our stead, bearing it for us, being raised from the dead so that we might have a hope in this life, do you find him precious? I, I would ask, God, I want to see Jesus like you see him. I, 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 want to, I want to find him to be... There are so many precious things. My family, this church, there are many good precious things you have in life. He is the most precious. I, I mean, to have this hope of a destiny of honor. What in this life gathers your attention? Is it it your your financial security? Is it the friendships you have? Is it the job you have? The success you've earned at work? What what really causes you to to feel loved, to feel good, to feel satisfied, to feel happy, to feel content? And yet, here we have the preciousness of Jesus. He's precious to us. I would say, you know, Another objection that's often thrown at the church is the church. In other words, people don't want to believe in the Christian faith because of the church, and sadly we have given them much evidence, the non-Christian to disbelieve because of our behavior with one another. Um, But if you are here and you're investigating the Christian faith, if you're just thinking about it, you haven't determined whether you really believe it or not, I would ask you to first begin with Christ to look at him, to consider his teachings, to think through who he is, what he said, how he behaved, before you look at the church. I I think any of us would agree that as parents with young kids who are growing up and maybe going through some awkward stages, I don't want my parenting judged uh, by the developmental process of my child. I mean, we know that kids take a while to grow up, and I don't know that I want my parenting judge. I don't know that it's fair for any of us to really judge Jesus and his preciousness and his beauty based upon sometimes the failing of the church. What we see here, though, and this is important if you are looking at the faith, is that Jesus determines the destiny of both, uh, that, that for those who believe he is precious and there is honor, For those who do not believe, uh, he is a crushing stone. And you want to be on the right side. In fact, C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says says it this way. He says, for you will certainly carry out God's purpose. God is sovereign. The Bible teaches that clearly. He says, for you will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. You know, they both were in the decreed plan of God, and yet there's a difference between the two. I would encourage you to consider Jesus Christ. Okay, the fourth privilege that I would bring before you is the purpose of the church. That is, that we get to declare the excellencies of Him who saved us. Now, look with me at nine. You see these string of titles given to the church, these are all exclusively to Israel. Right They're from uh, Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, that we are now, he says, but you. He returns to us, so he, he leaves those who are rejecting the Messiah, and he returns to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, uh, sorry, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people belonging to God. Now, I'll speak about these more next week. But what I want to point out to you that these are all terms relating to Israel, giving them an identity with God, and he's now giving them to the Gentile Church. That that we are a chosen race. Let me just touch on that for a minute. We did not choose him, he chose us. But but he's making a new race. We're a chosen race. In other words, no longer do we identify ourselves by by nationalities. Uh, we don't identify ourselves as Americans or or Brits or or Whatever, and we don't identify ourselves Those are the only two countries I could come up with on top of my head. There's only 243 of them. You think I could muscle up three, maybe four. We don't identify ourselves by color anymore, black or white or yellow or red. The church doesn't identify ourselves by political philosophy uh, or by, by financial views or by educational philosophies. We never want to identify ourselves by those. We want to identify ourselves by Christ. We're now a chosen race. He has forged out of many one, one in Christ. This is extremely liberating. It's not that differences don't matter, they do. Differences are a glorious thing, actually, but they're all subordinate to who we are in Christ. So that's what we are, a chosen race. We're a new people. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, he made the two one new man. And he's made peace for that one new man with God. So we're a, choos- a chosen race, we're a royal priesthood. I mean, think about it, you now have access to God. You are now a worshiper. You don't need anymore to rest on the, the experts doing worship for you. While I may be preaching, you're still the priesthood. Of, you're still the priests, men and women, by the way. All worshiping God rightly, as Peter says later in chapter 3, the women are co-heirs with men of this glorious salvation. We now, you now bring as much to the table in worship as I do. We all do, because we're all now one in Christ. We're all living stones. That's liberating. We don't have a hierarchy. We have leadership in the church for the benefit of the church to protect the church. But it's not a hierarchy of value. It's a hierarchy of roles all it is, different roles. So, so you're a royal priesthood. Do You see yourself that way. I don't think many of us do. I, I think you'd rather rest on the professionals to do the worship, but, but it's for you to do. We'll talk about that more next week, but you're also a holy nation. Again, you get that holiness theme because he is holy, that we're a people belonging to God. He possesses us that you once were not a people, but now you are his people. You once had not received mercy, but now you do have mercy. That's who you are. Don't let the world conform your identity to its liking. This is what determines your identity. And the reason he returns to our identity he says, this is who you are. Therefore, go and declare the excellencies of the one who drew you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the privilege of the church is we get to now do that. But most of us don't feel like evangelism is a privilege. We see it as kind of a burden, or a have-to, or an obligation. We don't see it as a privilege. And I think the reason we don't see it as a privilege is because we don't understand the preciousness of Jesus. See, when we think of evangelism, when we think of a text like verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. What we think is technique. i, I got to get that strategy where I can present the gospel And they'll be converted. Or we think about a technique or strategy. Or we think about apologetics. I have to have all the answers. So when they ask me questions back, I'll have something for them. And those things are legitimate, no doubt. But but that's not primary. Primary is the preciousness of Jesus. If you really find him precious... If you really find him as a savior, if you really find him as ready at hand, that you can come to him, he takes you to the Father, the resources resources that you need are yours. If you really see him as precious, you'll speak about him. You may not have the best technique. You may not have all the answers for the apologetical questions. That's okay. You will speak about him. I would rather not give you techniques and I would rather drive you to say, hey, just spend time thinking about Jesus Christ and his life, and his death, and his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand. Think about that for a while. Let that just bake in your soul. Think about Charles Spurgeon. On a historical note, he was the British preacher back in the mid-19th century. The first um, time he was going with a friend to a church, they were in training. He had been converted at 16. It was in the summer. And he's walking to this town, Teversham, and, uh, and he's walking with his friends. And while they're walking, they've both been invited to go. And while he's walking, uh, Spurgeon just says, Hey, listen, I've been praying for you uh, that God would use your words um, to encourage the people in faith. And the man got upset. He goes, I'm not preaching. You're supposed to be preaching. And, and Spurgeon said, No, I expected that you were preaching. I thought you were preaching. And so they're both walking down. And so the man convinced Spurgeon to to be the one that would preach. And, and, And here's what he says. He says this. Spurgeon, in his testimony, says, I walked along quietly, lifting up my soul to God, and it seemed to me that I could surely tell a few poor cottagers of the sweetness and love of Jesus, for I felt them in my own soul. After the sermon, a woman asked him, How old are you? And he said, under 60. And she says, under 16, which he was, or just about. And he said to her, never mind my age. Think on the Lord Jesus and his preciousness. Because this text was the first first sermon that he preached. To you who believe, Jesus is precious. Is he precious to you? I mean, think about how Jesus has given us access to the Father how jesus we're being built up in him right now uh, that that jesus has for us secured a future of honor not shame again we don't understand cuz we're not a shame based culture but the shame that that these folks faced was confronted with the honor that was to be theirs and is to be ours and and the privilege that we have of finding Jesus precious, and out of the sweetness of Jesus, our souls would speak to him of others. So let's just take a minute now and and consider these things. You are now the people of God. You're You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God. Let's take these minutes before the elder comes up to pray and consider his sweetness. And perhaps you want to confess that you haven't found him sweet. There's a lot of sweet things offered in this world, but perhaps they've been drawing your attention. Let this be a time of conviction of sin. Uh, Asking him to open your eyes to his sweetness. And then this elder will close us in prayer in just a moment.